Um, we're in a series, or we've been in a series, just talking about the Christmas light. And I'm transitioning just for today only to talk about the idea of church planting. It will be a conversation topic for the members meeting a little bit. We'll give an update on the fact that we have a group within the congregation that is planting a church in Long Island. And we've been working out some details, and so we haven't talked a lot about it. And then as I was preparing for the annual meeting and even talking with some gentlemen last night, just processing and been processing this throughout this week, I just felt it might be a good opportunity to answer from a theological position and to answer from a personal position, why are we planting a church in Long Island? Why church planting in general? Now, again, at the members meeting, we'll talk through some of the practicals behind it, but I want to talk about it from a visional perspective. Why are we planting a church in Long Island? Why do we plant churches in general? Why are we planting a church? I want to answer the question, and then I want to defend it a little bit. The question gets asked, why do we plant a church when it causes us to send out people we love? If we notice that there's a group in the congregation that will be going out to church plant, this is, we're not just sending out one family, we're sending out Uh, over a third of our current active membership to go plant a church in Long Island? Why are we doing that and sending out so many people that we love? Why are we planting a church when it causes us to be financially strapped even more so than we already are in a difficult economic financial situation that we find ourselves in within our current nation, largely due to a lot of various things coming out of COVID. Finances are an effect on our congregation. Why now to plant a church? Why are we planting a church when it causes our pastor to be focused on two congregations? Because I will be helping them on Sunday morning lead that congregation and then be back out here on Sunday night. Why are we doing that? Why are we planting a church when it causes us to say no to other things we might want to say yes to? And I want to answer the question directly and defend it. And it might be a little bit of a controversial answer, but I was encouraged by some gentlemen who just gave wisdom to say, hey, speak your heart and give vision and vulnerability for why we are doing what we feel God's called us to do. And here's the direct answer. Why are we planting a church when these things are true? And here's the answer. Because the local church institution of New Hope is not our number one priority. Notice in the question of why are we doing this when it causes us to send out people we love? Why are we doing this when it causes us to be financially strapped? Why are we doing this when it causes our pastor to be focused in two different locations? Why are we doing this when it causes us to say no to other things we might want to say yes to? The foundation for all those questions, as good as they are, are from a foundation of the institution of New Hope. And what I mean by that is the local church institution. And what I want to say, and I believe what the sermon today wants to say, is that the local institution of New Hope is not our number one priority. Meaning what making New Hope something, whatever it is we might have in mind, is not our number one priority. Well, it begs the question, well then what is? And what must our number one priority be? And the answer to that question must be the kingdom of God. Now, I said it might be a controversial answer in the sense of you have a pastor say that the church that he's pastoring, the institution of that church is not his number one priority. I did not say the people, the spiritual body of the church is not my number one priority, but the institution of what is called new hope as an entity is not my number one priority. Priority, the kingdom of God is. I said it's controversial because of that, but 
hopefully it's not controversial in the sense of this is not something new. I've been saying this for the six years that I've been your pastor. So there's four steps I want us to do as we try to unpack that very direct answer to the question, why are we doing this? First, I want to look at a definition of the kingdom of God. If we're going to prioritize the kingdom of God, let's look at a definition. Second, let's actually look at what Scripture says about the kingdom of God being a priority in our lives. Third, I want to look at the movement of the priority, or excuse me, a movement of the kingdom of God. And then fourth and lastly, we'll look at metaphors that Jesus gives us about the kingdom of God and what can that tell us. So first, the definition of the kingdom of God. Here's how I want to define the kingdom of God, which is quite difficult to do. I have a I have a book called The Kingdom that's like 700 pages on my shelf. And I'm just like, man, I just need like one sentence. Like I don't need 700 pages. I just need one sentence. And here's the best answer I can give you. The definition of the kingdom of God in scripture is God's sovereign activity to rescue and renew all of creation through the work of Jesus. The kingdom of God is his sovereign activity to rescue and renew all of creation through the work of Jesus. I got this illustration I'm about to show you um, from Timothy Keller, and I want to just read Genesis chapter 3 for a second and begin to unpack what is it that needs rescuing and what is it that needs renewing. In Genesis chapter 3, there are what we will look at as four in this text. We'll look quickly at four uh, alienations that come into humanity due to the sin of Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, we don't have an exhaustive context of the relationship between Adam and Eve with God prior to this moment. But it seems to imply that God used to come and have evening walks with Adam and Eve. Now, we don't know how many evenings prior to sin. We don't know those details. But it seems to imply that it wasn't that weird that God was coming to walk with Adam and Eve. What was weird is that they were hiding. And there's four realities that I want us to see from sin that I'm going to place in kind of this graph of these concentric concentric circles of alienations. The first is spiritual. The one Adam and Eve sin at the corner of it and primary, I'm not saying all these are necessarily equal, but the foundational issue is that there was a spiritual alienation between Adam and Eve and God himself. He came walking in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from him. Uh, I remember uh, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, because we're in Memphis, Tennessee, I'm given a confession here. Because of Memphis, Tennessee, we don't have a professional baseball team, but we have the AAA team to the St. Louis Cardinals in Memphis. And so I grew up as a Cardinals fan because of that. I quickly repented and became a Mets fan once I moved here. So that's my confession. But I remember going and I was so excited to go to St. Louis to see my first baseball game. Uh, St. Louis Cardinals, Albert Pujols was playing for them at the time. If you know who that is, he had a walk-off home run while I was there. I got it on my camera. It was absolutely awesome. But the next day, we went to the St. Louis Arch and went on top of the arch. And just a fun story, we had some family members there with us that are incredibly afraid of heights. And seeing one particular family member, I will not name names, crawl across the top of the arch floor and would not stand up was quite funny and interesting. That's afraid of heights. But when you think about an arch, the most arguably, I'm not an engineer or architect, but arguably one of the most important points of that is the very central. 
Imagine you're building a block, so imagine you may have seen it before. You have two people just lean against each other, like make an arch, and they use their momentum to hold them up. But what happens if you remove the center? Begins this inward crumble that takes place. Well, the reality is when we talk about in this, these four, spiritual, psychological, social, and nature, nature, we'll talk about the other three in a second, but spiritual is the center cornerstone of all that is alienated and broken because of sin. And because of that, everything else crumbles and falls. We see Augustine would say it like this in the 4th and 5th century. He says that we all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And until that hole gets filled with God, nothing else can find its proper place. Well, this is what happens when Adam and Eve, there was a spiritual alienation that took place, but that wasn't the only thing. There was a psychological, and I think, I think we understand this, because of guilt and shame, because of things that we've done, because of things that other people have done, there is a psychological effect of sin in our lives. We even see this with Adam and Eve. He says this in verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the sound of the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There's this picture of guilt and shame. And because of that, it had effects on his understanding of his relationship with God. And so we understand that in sin, there's an alienation that is spiritual. There's an alienation that is psychological. But we also understand there's an alienation that's social. Two aspects of this. Look what happens in verse 11. Or excuse me, let's go back to verse 10. And he said, I heard you in the sound of the garden. I was afraid, I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Notice the social alienation that's about to take place. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Notice the social alienation and the social brokenness that takes place between Adam and Eve because they begin to point the finger at one another. He doesn't take responsibility, but begins to blame the woman. And then the man said, the woman whom you gave me, and then the Lord God, in verse 13, said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Furthermore, look at Genesis 3, 7. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Again, this is a picture of a covering up of guilt and shame, not only between them and God, but between them and one another. So there's an alienation that took place both socially, and but, but then lastly, there's a nature alienation, a nature brokenness that has taken place. Look at Genesis 3.17. God said to Adam, because of your sin, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And, and looking for an illustration to kind of understand this reality, I came across an article in uh, uh, Good Housekeeping from the 1980s. It was a humorous kind of article column, and here's what... It said, again, good housekeeping. What's public enemy, enemy number one for us in the household? I know this uh, to be true with kids or just because of myself, but the answer the columnist gives is dirt. We fight against dirt all of our lives. There's dirt in the diaper. Then the next thing you know, there's more dirt in the diaper. There's dirt on the dishes. There's dirt on the rug. There is dirt everywhere. You fight against it, dirt all your life. What do you get for it at the end? Six feet of dirt. <laughs> the columnist is being funny to say what Genesis 3 is saying. 
that because of sin, there is a brokenness between us and nature. But I want you to point out, or I want to point out something to you that we're going to see play out later on when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. So I'm laying a foundation to define what is the kingdom of God. That these first two, we would say, are uh, inner uh, issues potentially, and then these other two are outward issues. Now, I'm not being overly specific, but when we talk about in the church the importance of giftings of word and giftings of deed, we begin to see this play out. Mostly spiritual is met by the what? The preaching of the gospel. Biblical counseling and truth are psychological in the sense that our word deeds. Now, we'll talk about this at a different time, but this is a lot of the roles of even when we see pastors and deacons or when we see other roles within the church between word deeds and action deeds of serving and meeting physical needs and as well as spiritual. But I'm bringing that up to say this. When we define the kingdom of God as God's sovereign activity to rescue and renew all of creation through the work of Jesus, we're not just talking about spiritual needs. That the kingdom of God, we'll see when we unpack some passages, is coming and is more than, it's not less than, and the foundation is this, but it is more than just simply saying that you need spiritual renewal. Now, spiritual renewal, I very much believe, is the foundation for everything else. It's that within an arch. It is the core of everything and that we can't begin to fix anything else without Jesus and the foundation. And that is why the New Testament writers, and I would even argue that's why the, uh, all of Scripture is pointing to Christ coming and advancing his kingdom through the rescuing and renewing of all of his creation, both spiritual, psychological, social, and in us with nature. So that leads me to truth number two, the priority of the kingdom of God. The priority of the kingdom of God. What I want to do, and it's going to be on the screen, is I'm just going to walk through passages of Scripture so we can see as it talks about the kingdom of God. I've covered these passages of Scripture before, but when we say our priority of why are we church planting is because our focus is the kingdom of God. Mark 1.15, Jesus begins to preach, and he says what? Repent and believe in the gospel. And I'm Obviously got that a little bit out of order. I haven't memorized differently. But the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew records it. For that time, Jesus began to preach saying what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Noticing, even though Jesus isn't describing the kingdom here, he is saying he's starting his preaching. And what is the content of his preaching? The kingdom of God. At one point, he is teaching, and the people are gathering him together, and his response to his disciples are what? I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. If I were to pick any passage of Scripture from today and just said, I only have one passage of Scripture to convince us as a congregation of the priority of going and planting a church, it would be this verse. Jesus had preached and people were responding and he was gathering people together and he had gathered the crowd together. And what did he do? He left the crowd because he knew there were other places that needed to hear of the good news of the gospel. And so he left the gathering to go and preach the gospel in other places. In Luke chapter 8, 9, and 10, Luke, we're going to now stay in pretty much in Luke the rest of the way, both in Luke and Acts. But in Luke 8, 1, soon afterwards, he went through the cities and villages proclaiming the Uh, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him. So in Luke chapter 8, question I want you to ask is, who is preaching and what is being preached? 
Jesus is preaching, and he's preaching about the kingdom of God. But in Luke chapter 9, the answer to those two questions, at least one of the answers, changes. And he called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Who is proclaiming and what is being proclaimed? The 12 are proclaiming now in Luke chapter 9, and what are they proclaiming the kingdom of God? Now, here's where I want to pause just for a second, and why did I give the, the four concentric circle diagram of alienation? Because I believe the kingdom of God, Jesus has given us a picture into how the kingdom of God rescues and renews all of creation here in this particular text in Luke chapter 9. And it says this, he gave them, I don't know if you can see that, he gave them power and authority over what? All demons and to cure diseases. Now, sometimes there have been some theologies in the church that says the kingdom of God is the simply, explicitly here, the outworking of the demonic. And I want to say yes, clearly, that's what Scripture says. And if we hold Scripture's authority, we've got to unpack this truth. But I think it's signaling to something we've already talked about. When you think about demons and cure diseases, we're going to see here in a moment in Luke chapter 10, he, uh, he does the same thing. He sends them out to cure over demons and diseases. When you think about the demonic, the demonic is what? It's an internal issue. Diseases are often an external issue. In the same way, and I'm giving an example here. In the same way James says that true religion is that you take care of orphans and widows and to stay unstained from this world. Well, if we take that literally, as we should, but also understand that it's referencing something, but literally, if we were to take it only literal, we would say true religion is taking care of orphans and widows and nothing else. Well, there's has a lot of, other, lot of other things to say about what true religion is. But what is he referring to? Well, culturally, orphans and widows were culturally the two groups of people that could not provide for themselves, culturally at the time. That you needed cultural structures did not allow for orphans and widows often to provide for themselves. That's why Paul would give instructions to the church of how to take care of both orphans and widows. But the point is, it's specific to that group, but that group represents the vulnerable and the needy within the culture. So true religion is that you step in and meet the needs of people that cannot meet the needs themselves. You advocate for others. True religion advocates for others, in a sense. Well, similarly to this point, the demonic is not just a representation of specifically demonic. I believe it's a representation that the kingdom of God comes in and it rescues and renews all that is spiritual inward and all that is physical outward. Takes us back to what? The alienation that comes upon us in sin that we see in Genesis 3, spiritual and psychological, social and, and within nature. Well, guess what? Oftentimes, that's a picture of inward, and it's a picture of outward. So in the same way, when they go and preach, he's saying, as you preach the kingdom of God, and as the gospel comes into people's lives, you see a restoration of that which is inward and spiritual, and a restoration of that which is outward and physical. So while we must be a church that focuses on word and on deed as it comes to preaching the gospel. But for the sake of time, let's keep pressing forward. We're talking about the priority of the kingdom. Luke chapter 8, Jesus is preaching on the kingdom. Luke chapter 9, his 12 disciples are preaching on the kingdom. Luke chapter 10, 
After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them out ahead of them two by two into every town and the place where he was about to go, himself was about to go. And then we'll come back to this, but he then ends the section by telling them to go and proclaim the kingdom of God has come and is near to you. The kingdom of God has come and is near to you. But right here in the middle in verse two, says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I want you to notice, and it's going to get us to point number three in just a second, of the movement of the kingdom. But in Luke chapter 8, you have one person preaching the kingdom. Luke chapter 12, you have 12 people preaching the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 10, you have 72 people preaching the kingdom of God. Do you begin to see the movement outward multiplication that he is empowering others to go and preach? Why? Because the harvest is plentiful, but yet the laborers are few. Why are we planting a church? We're not planting a church because everything is perfect here. We're not planting a church because we are filled at the seams. Open your eyes. We're not planting a church because we have no financial, we have all the money in the world. That's not true. Um, We're not planting a church because of this, 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 because of personal circumstances. We're planting a church because the need is there and we have those who are willing to go. The harvest is plentiful, yet the laborers are few. We get to Acts chapter 1. The author is the same between Luke and Acts. In Acts chapter 1, we have a picture right before Jesus ascends into heaven. It's after his resurrection, before he ascends into heaven. Look what it says. In the first book, O Theopolis, this is Luke writing, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and what? speaking about the kingdom of God. When we get to the very end in Acts chapter 28, Acts 28, Paul is now in prison in Rome. He, that's Paul, lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming what? The kingdom of God. When we look at the book of Acts, Acts 1, it starts talking about the kingdom. Acts 28, it ends talking about the kingdom that it's showing us, the author is making it clear, this is the thesis of the book of Acts. This is the main point of the book of Acts, is the advancement of the kingdom of God. That we see that this is the focus. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. Luke 8, he preached. Luke 9, the 12 preached. Luke 10, the 72 preached. Now in the book of Acts, the kingdom is continuing to be preached. That the rescue and renewal of all people is happening because the kingdom of God is advancing. When you get to Matthew chapter 28, this is the idea of go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The command is go to make disciples, go to make people who are obedient to Christ and his kingdom, that are followers of his kingdom, that are faithful subjects of his kingdom. But you know what's interesting Nowhere, and I I challenge you to maybe you can find this, but nowhere in the New Testament do we find a command to go plant churches. Nowhere. So why are we planting churches? Because we got to understand when we colloquially, meaning just in our normal language, talk about planting churches, we're not talking about planting an institution that we call church. We're not talking about planting a 501c3 that we register with the state, although legally we're required to do that, so we do that. What we're talking about is we're talking about going into a community, 
preaching the gospel of Jesus, watching the gospel in Jesus, rescue and renew people, make disciples, have them come to know him through that evangelism, be brought in relationship with him, and then as individuals hear the gospel, are rescued and renewed, we begin to gather them into local bodies that we call churches. Do you know the Greek word ecclesia? It just simply means the gathering. It's the gathering of disciples of Christ that we now call church. The point is, is that the local New Testament church in the book of Acts was not the purpose. It was the mode in which the kingdom of God advanced. That new hope is not the purpose. The church in Long Island is not the purpose. The purpose is preaching the gospel so that rescue will come into people's lives, both spiritual primarily, that sets things right, and then allows all the other dominoes in people's lives to fall into place, to rescue and renewal through the gospel. And then as those disciples are gathered together, we call that a church. We call it church planting, because what else are we going to call it? A gathering of disciples? We can, that's a mouthful, but we, in culture, just call that a church. We're going and planting a church, which means we're going into a place and we're seeing people come to know Christ. And we're gathering those people and we're calling it a church. So the priority is not on the local New Testament church. That's not the goal. In the book of Acts, the kingdom of God is. The local church is just the method or the means or the mode in which the people gather as they go on mission. Point number three. As we see the movement of the kingdom of God, the movement of the kingdom of God. Let me go ahead and illustrate this. This, this, this point could have been titled the multiplication of the kingdom of God. Same idea. But I want us to see the movement of how the kingdom of God goes out. Let me give you an illustration. I want you to think about how you would answer this question. I come to you off the street. I give you two options, two legitimate options. Option number one, here's a million dollars. Option number two, I'll give you a penny. And I'll double that penny every day for 31 days. Well, because of just the setting, you're tempted to go, I feel like this is a trick question. I feel like I should take the penny. But if I'm not able to do the math and you give me 10 seconds to just pick an answer, I'm taking the million bucks. I'm playing it safe. I'm taking the million bucks. But if you risked it and you took the penny and you understood the power of multiplication, you would understand that a penny doubled every day for 31 days is $10.7 million. Think about that. One penny becomes two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, we'll stop there, 256. Anybody play that game, 256, I think is what it's called? Um, That's about as high as I can go because of the game. But you begin to see the power of multiplication. I want to show you that that is precisely the movement of the book of Acts and what the picture of the kingdom of God is. The movement of the book of Acts, Acts 1-8. And you'll see power in the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Again, I drew you a picture of concentric circles. The same ideas here, concentric ideas of Jerusalem, then going out to the region of Judea, then Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that the gospel is moving outward. The kingdom of God is here. Christ has planted it. And now the spirit of God in the church is moving the kingdom outward. So we see this outward movement take place. Acts 2.41, I'm showing you some Greek. You don't need to know it, but I'll make an illustration just by the reality of it. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added, Acts 2.41, that day about 3,000 souls. You just need to recognize the picture of this word. You're going to see it repeated. That's all you need to know. I want to show you how it's repeated. 
Because in English, the words don't necessarily differ, so we need to see the intentionality of Luke in writing Acts of how he differs his language in the Greek. Acts 2.47, at the end of that text, he says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, we started an illustration about the power of arithmetic and multiplication. And so we're seeing arithmetic language in the book of Acts. They were added. Prostithemy is what this word is. It means simply to be added. And so what happens in Acts 2.41? People were added. In Acts 2.47, people were added. Acts 4.4 doesn't use the word added, but it says, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. But when we get to 5 verse 14, we see this same word used again. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. When we begin to see the movement of the kingdom of God in the book of Acts, we begin to see this picture of addition taking place. Now, we're going to get to multiplication, but you can't multiply anything by zero. It would be zero. You've got to have addition. Notice what happens in Acts 6.1. And in those days when the disciples were increasing, notice it doesn't say add anymore, and notice the word has changed. Just to give illustration, this is what the word added looks like. Notice here, different word. is that they begin to increase in number. The disciples increased in number, and a complaint came amongst the Hellenists, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we understand in verses 2 through 6 that deacons are installed for the first time. Then we get to verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. Now I want you to notice, this is why I use the Greek, is because this English word here have two different Greek words. This one's oxano, this one's plethuno. So the English gives us the same English word, two different Greek words. That can be, that's helping us miss the point. So I want to show you the point. And it says, though, and the number of the disciples multiplied. Here's where we see the word plethuno. So, in fact, we see the same Greek word translated in different English words. So I want to point it out to you. Is that in verse 1, increase is the same word that is translated multiplied down here in verse 7. Why is this important? Because it's at the moment that deacons are installed and there's important decision in the church because the church wasn't just being added to anymore. But we went from addition to multiplication. I don't know about you, but when it comes to my 401k or when it comes to stocks, I don't want addition. I want exponential multiplication. I want high percentages of growth. Why? Because we understand the power of exponential growth through multiplication versus just plus one, plus one, plus one, plus one, or plus two, plus two. I'd much rather it say times two, times two, times two, because we understand that exponentially grows. Well, that's precisely what Luke is telling is happening in the church, that the movement of the kingdom of God is beginning to multiply. Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I find it interesting that Luke's not using the word add again until we get to Acts 11.19. I'm not going to read it all, but I've given it to you in context. He uses this word add again. Now, why? Does this, does this mean the church went from addition to multiplication back to addition? This is why I call this the movement of the kingdom instead of the multiplication of the kingdom in this point. It's because remember Acts 1.8 says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What we see in Acts 11 is the gospel just went into the Gentiles for the first time. And Luke is very intentional to show up through this point, Acts 1 through 9, 
within the Jewish people and within Jerusalem, addition happened, multiplication then happened. But then we understand that there was a great persecution that came on the church. Then the gospel was spread throughout other places. And then guess what? In those places, they had to start adding again. And in Acts 11, he describes it that first they were added. But guess what? When we get to Acts 12, they were no longer adding once again, but he uses the same combination of oxano and plethuno to describe that the church is no longer being added to within the Gentile world. It is now multiplying. The point is both within Jews and Gentiles in the book of Acts, we see a description of the growth of the church as first being added to, but there came a point within the church that exponential growth began to take place. Well, guess what? You cannot multiply something until you divide it and send it out and multiply it. That this church cannot become two until you send out a group of people to go and plant another church. That multiplication happens through reproducing. And so why do we church plant? Because we prioritize the kingdom and we see the movement of the kingdom as that which multiplies. Now let me close with a metaphor of the kingdom that just might be helpful for us. Because if you may be like, I don't get this whole analytical stuff, that I'm a very analytical thinker, give me a picture. Jesus gives us a picture in Luke chapter 13. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a, became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. Super small mustard seed takes and something that is small can multiply and exponentially grow into something that is big. Verse 20, and again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flowers, and it was all leavened until it became all leavened. Once again, it's a picture of something starting small and permeating out until it controls the entirety. When we begin to talk about our mission as a church and our vision to focus on gospel uh, multiplication through leadership development for the sake of the gospel going out in both Queens and Nassau County, why are we planting a church? Is because we are saying we want to see the kingdom multiplied. We want to see that, that which is small. We don't have to be big, but we start small and trust the spirit of God and he will take our efforts and we believe that the kingdom of God will grow and that will continue to go out and not just, again, we're using planting churches not to describe starting institutions, but starting communities of faith that is preaching the gospel so the kingdom of God can come into that community. And there's a rescue of all that which is spiritual, psychological, social, and any alienation with nature. But I, I simply want to ask this question or answer this question one more time. Why do we plant a church? Why do we go out? Why do we sacrifice? Why do we do these things? And the simplest answer is that is precisely what Jesus has done for us. Notice what I just described. Is that what I just described was this outward movement of those who sacrifice for the sake of God's glory. That's precisely what Jesus did. Philippians 2 is maybe the best picture of this. That although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but instead he let it go. He emptied himself. He took on flesh the form of a servant, even to the point of death on a cross, in order to bring the good news of gospel to you. 
Why do we plant a church? It's because God has given us the gospel message and we want other people to hear and respond to the gospel message because we believe Christ is on a mission to rescue and renew their lives in the same way he has ours for his honor and his glory. And so let us continue to be a church even as we talk about why are we planting a church in Long Island and we talk about these things. I just wanna take a moment and I want you to hear from me why it's important to me and why I feel compelled to lead us as a church towards this vision and to strive towards this vision is because Christ gave everything so that I could have rescue and renewal. And so there's no greater purpose in this life for me to leverage my life so that others can hear the good news of gospel so that they too can what? Have the kingdom come into their life. The kingdom is God's sovereign activity to rescue and renew all of creation through the work of Jesus. Has Jesus come into your life? Has Jesus done a work of renewal in your life? Maybe today your response is simply to submit to the king and come into his kingdom and to honor him as Lord and Savior of your life and trust him as a good king because he is in the business of rescuing and renewing your life. And although that job is not complete until he returns or until we go and be with him, we are on a journey of being a part of his body of continuing to see his kingdom go forth and allow that which is spiritual and that which is physical to be renewed and restored back into relationship with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness in our lives. We thank you as I just reflect on the fact that you have rescued me. You have rescued me from my spiritual alienation and depravity. You have rescued me from the guilt and shame that plagues my psychology. You have rescued me and brought unity and restoration to the social fabrics that have been broken. And we believe that the gospel will continue to be the answer to social divides. That you, Jesus, Ephesians 2 says, break down the walls of hostility and you bring together that, use, that which used to be divided socially. And Father, we understand that we are not right with your physical world because of our sin. But we trust that you are too making this earth new. And that one day you'll usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And that all things will be made new. So Lord, I pray over this room. I pray for myself and others. Might your kingdom invade our lives. You tell us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life. Oh, that's such a good prayer. Let your kingdom of rescuing and renewal come into my life. Let it come into this church. Let it come into this community. Let it come into this city. Might your kingdom go forth through us as the body of Christ. Father, we pray blessings over this city. We ask that you would use us, that you would give us everything we need, but we will trust you. We will follow you. We will glorify you. As we read in Psalm 67, might your face shine upon us and bless us so that we can go and proclaim the blessing to the nations so that all the nations may praise you. Let all the nations praise you, Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. 
We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.